all through this passage, it's about Jesus' authority. We're going to see four things that, that he exercises authority over in these verses. We'll see them in a second. But before I start on that, it's worth acknowledging, isn't it, that authority is a bit of a dirty word in today's culture and in our world. And that's at least in part because too many people have abused their authority. And in fact, humans all through history have always abused their authority for their own gains. They have exercised their authority to make themselves look better or to benefit themselves in some way or another. But it's important to point out as we start and think about Jesus' authority, that is not the way with Jesus. We hear him say in a very famous verse later in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 45, he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Not like, he says, I'm not like the, those who rule over the Gentiles, who boss them and lord it over them, he says. No, I've come to serve. So Jesus uses his authority for our good uses his authority for our good. And if we're on his team, if we by faith know him and trust him, then as we consider Jesus' authority, then I, I hope and trust it will be a great comfort to us. Because we see here that this Jesus, who has authority over so many things, he uses it for our good. Because he's come to serve us. To lord it over us. If you're here this evening and, and you're not on Jesus' team, you're not by faith, trusting him. Well, I trust that there will be something about this evening that's profoundly unsettling. Because here is a man who claims to have authority over all things. Here we are. The first thing. Jesus has authority to teach. Authority to teach. Look down at verse 1. Uh, we'll be going more or less in order through the passage as we think about these four things. Uh, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum. Well, he again entered Capernaum, so when was he last there, we might ask, mightn't we? Well, if we look back in, in chapter 1 and verse 21, we'd see that's when he was last in Capernaum. They went to Capernaum. And what did Jesus do when he was last there? Well, he went into the synagogue and he began to teach. And what was the impression that people were left with from his visit? What would they have remembered when he re-entered Capernaum in our passage? Well, it's his teaching. Look at verse 22. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. What else? Well, verse 27. Uh, what is this, they say? A new teaching and with authority. This is what they're struck by in Jesus' presence in Capernaum. His authority as he teaches, as he drives out evil spirits and and we see later on in verses 29 to 32, 34 even, he stays and he, he heals Simon's mother-in-law and he heals all those who are brought to him who are sick and ill. He has authority over them too. Authority in his teaching, which is backed up by his acts. Authority. It explains, doesn't it, the popularity that Jesus is greeted with in verse 2. They gathered in such large numbers in chapter 2 that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. It's not surprising, is it, if you think that these people had experienced Jesus doing these things in their town, he's gone away for a time, he's come back. Well, yes, we would expect that people were crowding round the door. There's one lovely little detail that uh, I found really helpful just thinking about this. If you look into uh, verse 32 of chapter 1, 
or verse 33 actually, it says the whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. And then we read on chapter 2 and verse 2, there was no room left, not even outside the door. So even more people have come to hear and to see Jesus. Such is his authority, his teaching. What will he do when he returns? The the answer is obvious, isn't it? He will preach the word. He preached the word to them at the end of verse 2. He had authority. People wanted to hear him. They were flocking to hear him. They were desperate to know what he had to say. This guy knows his stuff. He has authority. People are still looking for authoritative voices in our world today, aren't they? They're seeking out the the expert, the expert on one thing or another. Uh, I had a friend who uh, has a one-year-old son or so, and um, for over a year, they really struggled with this son because he didn't sleep. Uh, Maybe some of you know what that's like. And um, he knew what they needed to do. They needed to train this child to sleep. That's what they needed to do. They needed to stop letting him twist them around his little finger. That's what they needed to do. And they knew it, and friends told them this, and their parents told them this, but they wouldn't do it because they couldn't do it. And in the end, they decided that the best thing to do was to spend hundreds, and I literally mean hundreds of pounds, on two sessions with a sleep consultant who told them, you need to train your child to sleep, and you need to leave him to cry for a few minutes. You see, he was honest enough to admit that what they needed was an authority in, their, in that situation and in that context to tell them it's okay to leave your child to sleep. I'm a sleep consultant. It's okay. Pay me money and I'll tell you it's okay and then you can feel better about doing it. And that's what he did. And he said it was the best few hundred pounds he's ever spent. So there you go. You see, people are seeking for authority, looking for authority, looking for authoritative voices. And where more authoritative could we turn to than to Jesus? His teaching is still authoritative in our world today. Are you wondering whether to divorce your wife? I mean, I hope you're not, but are you wondering? Well, Jesus has something to say about it. Are you wondering how to spend your money? Jesus has something to say about that. Are you wondering what you should do in your retirement? Well, Jesus has something to say about that. How you should spend your career? Jesus has something to say about that. Are you tearing your heads out, wondering, a hair out, sorry, wondering how to raise your children? Well, if you're with me on that, then Jesus, Jesus has something to say about that. Are you wondering how you can be a really good friend, a person in need? Jesus has something to say about that too. Because he teaches with authority. It's not necessarily straightforward. It's not like we would turn to a page in Scripture and find chapter and verse, you shall be an electrician, or you should give exactly this percentage of your money. No, rather, it's a lifelong journey of discipleship. As we listen to Jesus and engage with his teaching through all of his word, that we understand and appreciate the priorities that he has for us, the cares and concerns that he has for us, that we learn from him and his teaching how to live in his world. And you see, as we listen to Jesus and his authority, it shapes us more and more for the better. Jesus has authority to teach, and that's what draws people to him. But he also has authority to forgive sins, doesn't he? Let me tell you the story 
of Job. He'd had a tough life. Uh, He couldn't remember a day, really, when he hadn't been lying on his mat. He'd always, as far as he was aware, been paralyzed. The only one bright thing in his life were his friends, because they helped him. They went and took him to the side of the road so he could beg. They got him supplies. They got him food. They brought him things. And one day, these friends came to him, and they said, Joe, Joe, we're going to help you today. There's somebody in town. We think, he could, we think he could be helpful to you. We think he could maybe even fix your legs. Would you like to give it a go? Sure, sure, why not? They carried him on his mat through the streets of Capernaum. They turned down a side street, and there in front of them was a huge crowd spilling out into the street, except it was a strange crowd because it was a silent crowd. Everybody in the crowd was was straining and listening and and trying to hear what somebody was saying inside of the house. There was no room, obviously, for them to take Joe in in through the main doors. So the quick-thinking one spotted some steps up onto the roof of the house. You see, this guy had served in Herod's army. And during one campaign, they had actually gone up onto a flat roof and dug through the roof to conquer some enemy soldiers who were hiding in the house below. That's actually true. It's written down for us by Josephus, the historian. We know that happened. That's the true part of this slightly elaborated story from this passage. Fascinating, isn't it? Anyway, he went up. He took them up the the stairs and carried Joe across the roof. And they put him down roughly where they thought the man inside the building was standing. And then they started to dig. The roof would likely have been made of wood timbers covered in palm fronds, baked in mud. And so they literally dig through the mud and dig through the palm fronds until they make a hole. And they start to make the hole bigger and bigger and bigger. Inside, the man is teaching from the front, I suppose a little bit like this, except perhaps the people were a bit closer. And as he teaches, things start falling on his head. Can you imagine? Pods of earth and mud. Bits of a palm frond land on his shoulder. At what point does he stop? Does he stop? Does he just keep teaching? I don't know. Wouldn't you have loved to be there? To see it in all of its technicolor wonder. Who knows exactly what he does or doesn't do, how long he keeps teaching for, when he stops. But at some point he must have stopped. For there comes Joe on his mat, lowered right down in front of him. You could have heard a pin didn't you? The four guys on the roof are peering through the hole like this. Everybody else is watching. I mean, it's a bit rude interrupting this teacher mid-flow. What's he going to say? What is he going to say? What does he say? Verse 5. Son, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine the pandemonium, can't you, on the roof? The guys, sins? His legs are the problem, Jesus. His legs don't work. That's what we brought him to you for. The teachers of the law, well, we know what they were thinking, if not saying. Verses 6, they think he's blaspheming, this Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? Well, Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sins. A few details and, and questions that spring out at me from this account of Jesus Forgiveness. The first is this, that Jesus actually has authority to forgive sins. It's not that he's just declaring it. It's not that he's saying, oh, God has forgiven your sins. 
No, he actually says, doesn't he, to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law understand that, don't they? They understand that's the, the implications of what he's saying. If you read their questions, and they are three questions in the Greek, if we read them backwards, we get that. So if we start with the last one, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, nobody. Uh, is he blaspheming? If we read it as a question, yes, in, in, in some senses. Uh, why does this fellow talk like that? Because he's God. Because he's God. That's the answer, isn't it? If we read those questions backwards, of course, he wasn't really blaspheming because he was God. He was God. Jesus has authority to forgive sins, and he actually forgave them. Secondly, we must notice here that faith is the key to the door marked forgiveness, if I can put it like that. Faith is the key to the door which is marked forgiveness. Because look at verse 5. What comes first? Before Jesus says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven, what does he say? Or what does Mark tell us? He says, he says, when Jesus saw their faith. So what came first? Well, the faith, in some senses, came first, didn't it? Jesus saw their faith, and so he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't think this is to say that the faith somehow earns the forgiveness. It's not causal in its relationship, right? It's not that, oh yes, good faith, so therefore I'll forgive. But rather, it grants access. It's like uh, the key to the door marked forgiveness. It's uh, the passcode to the phone, if you want a more modern uh, example. How do I get into this thing, we might say? How do I get in? Well, the only way into the phone of forgiveness is the passcode that Jesus gives, and it's spelled F-A-I-T-H, faith. Faith, the key that grants access to forgiveness. But then we see, don't we, uh, that Jesus says he saw their faith. Their faith. So he sees the faith of the men, that the men who brought this man to him, presumably, maybe this guy's faith is caught up in that. Maybe. Uh, We certainly see that he expresses some faith, doesn't he, in verse 12 at the end, because he actually gets up. But apart from getting up from his mat... Uh, He doesn't actually do anything in this story. He literally just lies on the ground, doesn't he? Well, it's not the only place in the Gospels where we find faith being exercised on the behalf of somebody else, Jairus' daughter. Um, It's not the daughter's faith that makes her well. Uh, The family of a demon-possessed man in chapter 9. It's the family's faith that Jesus recognizes and, and then exercises the demon from that person who is sick and unwell. So you see, it's complicated, isn't it? How does faith relate to forgiveness in exactly what way? But notice this, that faith is the key to the door marked forgiveness. They're inextricably linked. We can access that room. We can know the blessing of forgiveness in our lives from Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, just like this man did, through exercising faith and trust in him. You remember, don't we, that the strength and power of of faith is not in the faith itself, but in the person in whom the faith is placed. Jesus himself says, a mustard seed of faith can move mountains. Then the third thing, just to notice about this forgiveness that Jesus offers, is we must ask the question, what's the nature 
of the relationship between the forgiveness that Jesus gives here and the healing that he goes on to do. Why does, in other words, why does he forgive first? I mean, that would be surely the question of the man on the roof, wouldn't it? We've brought this man to you because his, his legs don't work and you've forgiven his sins. Why have you done that? Uh, is it that either the man, wrongly, kind of perceives that he's committed some sin which has caused his, uh, his sickness? Is it that Jesus knows this man and knows that there's some specific sin which has caused his, his paralysis? Well, the Bible is clear. It's never necessarily and often not the case that people's sin is linked to their illness, but it could be. It could be. I think perhaps a clearer way to think about it is to think about Jesus here showing the priority of this man's need. He came with an obvious need, didn't he? The need that his legs didn't work. But Jesus shows him a far deeper spiritual need that he had, and that was for his sins to be forgiven. We all have needs, don't we? Some are very obvious. We might have needs of health or housing, uh, needs of money, line between need and want can become a bit blurred at points, can't it? But Jesus shows us our deepest need here in the way he deals with this paralyzed man. That is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Any other need that we have in this life is temporary because it ends when we end in our physical existence. Forgiveness of sins, well, that's an eternal need which is met by Jesus. Without, without it, no one could know God. No one could be at peace with him. No one could live with him forever. I'm aware of a slight contradiction, perhaps, in what Gareth was saying this morning and reminding us from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father's honor is our greatest need. But I don't think it's a contradiction as such. Rather, we're talking about kind of prior, logical priority. What comes first? Well, we can't honor God at all if, if we are not forgiven first. So here Jesus shows us the the logical priority of our needs, that we must be forgiven. That's our deepest spiritual need. And then we can honor God as we are called to do. Authority to forgive sins. Thirdly, and more briefly, the last two things here, Jesus shows that he has authority to know all things. Authority to know all things. The the teachers of the law and their questions that they're thinking in their minds well, it, it, it kind of shows, doesn't it, that they understand that Jesus' claim is to be God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Nobody. Is he blaspheming? Well, depending if you agree with him or not, yes or no. Uh, um, what's the last question or the first question in their list? Why does this fellow talk like this? Because he is God. But Jesus knows it. Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? You see, there is no secret for Jesus. No secret in anyone's minds or hearts. I, this last couple of weeks, I've been working in Vaughan Road a bit, and I've sat in the window, uh, in the desk that overlooks the window onto Vaughan Road. And it's got a great view into the Silver Palette, and also you can watch everyone parallel parking and uh, think about how you'd do it differently uh, or not. but that desk is, is, is a great desk. It's a great vantage point. And I, I do do some work sometimes, but I quite enjoy sitting and watching uh, conversations through the window into the silver palette. And you can 
understand so much about a conversation from people's body language and their gesticulations. And you just wish you were on a fly on the wall and you could hear what was going on and you start to imagine, what are they saying? What has just happened in her life or his life? It's fascinating. It really is. Well, I don't know what your thought life is like. I mean, I, you know, it would be fun, wouldn't it, sometimes, we think, to know what was inside somebody's head. But we don't have that ability. I can't even lip-read through glass. Somebody cleverer than me might be able to. I can't even do that. Jesus knows every thought on every heart, every person in all the world throughout all of history. What a staggering thought. Isn't that a staggering thought? I don't know what your thought life is like, but it means that Jesus knows your thought life just as he knew the thoughts of these teachers of the law as they sat there in that room with him. I've been convicted this week of this idea. As I walk down the street, as I go shopping in Sainsbury's, or as I'm driving my car and someone cuts me up, or as I'm sitting in church even, my thoughts, they condemn me. Jesus knows that. He sees everything, I think. I have much to say sorry of and repent of. You see, Jesus must have known too the thoughts and the attitudes of that paralyzed man as he lay on the mat. And yet, what did he do? He didn't condemn him for those thoughts. He forgave him of them. The same for us. The same for you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your deepest desires and longings, sometimes which are not pure and good. And yet he doesn't condemn you for them. Hold out a hand of forgiveness. We reach out in faith. He forgives us. The comfort to know, actually, that Jesus has authority to see into the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts and minds and still forget. Authority to know everything. And then finally, as this story comes to an end in this passage here, we see Jesus' authority to confront. To confront. Um, I've been watching and reading, actually. I've read the book after watching the series, The SAS Rogue Heroes. I don't know if you've seen it on BBC iPlayer or read the book. Um, and it struck, me, it struck me as I watched that program and read it that these guys who founded the SAS, they were not uh, the donkeys that led the lions or let's put it another way around, the SAS were not lions led by donkeys. You know that phrase referring to the First World War of the generals who sat back in HQ, miles behind the front line, the donkeys, whilst the lions went over the top into machine gun fire. Well, the SAS leadership was kind of the inversion of that. The leaders were on the front line. They were with the men. They went into battle with the men. It was them who jumped out the airplane first on all of their parachute jumps. They could talk the talk, but they also walked the walk, if you like. You've seen, just uh, before this passage, in chapter 1 and verse 45, that Jesus um, asked the, the leper who he healed uh, not to tell anybody about it, but instead the man went out and spoke freely. And uh, Jesus, it says, uh, couldn't enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. He manages to sneak into Capernaum here, doesn't he? After a few days, it says at the beginning of our passage. But it's not the case here that Jesus is trying to hide away this miracle or keep it under wraps. No, he sets out, he sets out to confront, to confront, to 
show that not only was he going to talk the talk, but also he was going to walk the walk. He sets out to prove his authority to forgive. Look down at verse uh, 9. Why are you thinking these things? It says in verse 8, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, and here's the key verse, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. See, he wants to confront the teachers of the law with his divinity, with his claim to be God, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, we could look at that uh, verse 9 and, and get a bit confused, couldn't we? He says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk? And we think, well, surely forgiving sins must be an easier thing to do than, uh, sorry, must be a, a harder thing to do than, um, than, than telling somebody to get up and walk, right? Because we can't forgive sins, so that must be a really hard thing to do. But Jesus' argument here isn't based on the inherent value of the acts themselves, but on their force as a, as a kind of uh, argument, if you like, or as a, a proving logic, right? He's saying, if I say your sins are forgiven, can any of you tell if it happened or not? No, you can't. So it's easier in one sense, right, in that sense, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Much harder in, that, in, in the sense of proving something to say to this man, get up, take your mat and walk, isn't it? Because everybody can see if it doesn't happen. And so the right answer there to that rhetorical question is, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Because nobody can see whether it's happened or not. So, he says, get up, take your mat, and go. And the man is healed. See, it's an intentionally confrontational act to show the teachers of the law who he really is. And Jesus has this authority to confront them, show them. Maybe I'm... Uh, going a bit far here, but I think there's a parallel here with Jesus' death and resurrection. Isn't there? I mean, as Jesus dies, he says, I die for the sins of the world. I, I am the lamb who gives up his life for everyone. How do we know that that's true? How do we know that it's, that it's acceptable to God? How do we know that, that this forgiveness really has been won, that sacrifice really has been paid? Well, we know because three days later, he rose from the grave. Physically, walked around and talked, appeared before 500 people, showed himself. See? Proving the reality of his forgiveness in his death and, and, and uh, uh, then as well. So you see, Jesus has the, the authority to confront you and I too. Maybe we're tempted to think, oh, I've got forever to think about Jesus. Well, actually, you don't have forever to think about Jesus. You've got as long as you're alive, and God alone knows how long that is. He confronts you with those words in verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. In loads of smaller ways too, for those of us who are believers, he confronts us with his teaching, with his knowledge of us, with his priority for our lives. We've seen that Jesus here has authority 
Authority over words and teaching. Authority over sin. Authority over our minds and our bodies, even. I wonder if you noticed the response of the people as they're watching on in verse 12. This amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Surely, it's the only right response, isn't it? We, those of us who trust in Jesus, we can be greatly comforted by his authority. His authority in our lives to teach us and show us the right way. His authority to forgive our sins as we see him raised to life. We realize he really did pay the price for our sins. His authority to know us deeply and yet love us still. His authority, even extending to our physical bodies as it does here to this man. The only right response, like these people, is to praise God in amazement grace to us. We're going to pray, and then we'll do just that as we sing our final hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to earth. We thank you for his authority. We thank you that we don't have to be scared of this authority because it's authority exercised for our good. Thank you for his authority to teach us and direct us in all ways in life. We pray that we might be those who, who throng around him like these people did in that town in Capernaum, to hear him teach and speak. We thank you he has authority to forgive us our sins. And we pray we may trust you fully and completely for the forgiveness you offer. We thank you for these things we've seen this evening. And we pray that we might praise you as we ought. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,